listeners are good i hope they are too they haven't heard from us in a while but they're getting used to it it's fine yeah it's okay yep so today um i have part two of our richard speck chronicle give it to me i'm excited yep and um because it's been so long i'm going to give a really quick rundown of part one um i didn't write this down so this is all from memory but okay. I mean, Richard Speck is a character. We um, know that. He's got a lot of shit going on. Mm. He has a propensity for getting himself arrested for uh-huh. many things. Uh-huh. Uh, he likes to drink. He likes to hold people by knife point. <laughs> um, and the end of our episode actually ended with him stealing the gun from Ella May, uh, the woman that he forced back to his room at the, uh, the inn. And then he proceeded to rape her and steal her gun. But she's still alive. She is still alive. Okay. Okay. And that kind of brings us to where we are in part two. Um, And really quick, at the top of the episode, because I forgot to mention this in part one, uh, the book that I read for this is called, and it's a long title, it is called The Crime of the Century, Richard Speck and the Murders That Shocked a Nation. Oh, okay. And this was written by Dennis Elbreo and William J. Martin. Okay. Um, Dennis Elbreo was one of the prosecuting attorneys. So there is so much good information in this book. I can't even begin to cover all of it because there is so much. Mm-hmm. And this is where I also tell you that this is going to be three port- parts and I'm sorry. What? Oh my. My, <laughs> my notes for today are 12 pages long. And I am only covering the murders today. Oh, my goodness. Well, this, I mean, this is a pretty extensive case. I don't see how you could do it. And um, I really just... thought it was going to be two. <laughs> yeah, no, can't do it. Yeah. So this is also where I'm going to warn everybody that these murders are gruesome. Uh, I really try not to spend a lot of time on the gory details. Unfortunately, all the details are gory and some of them have to make it in. So I'm not going to be gratuitous with any of them. I'm just going to tell you what happened to these girls. Um, And that's the only warning you all are going to get because it's one of those, it gets bad and then it gets worse and then it gets worse and it never really gets better. Oh, geez. That sounds great. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's great. Um, I have now spent six weeks of my life on this. You are just a Richard Speck expert now. Not yet, and I hope I never will be because there is (laughs) a lot. Okay, go for it. But here we go. Hit me with it. So I actually want to start this episode by describing the area that we're dealing with. Like I kind of gave you Richard's movements through this little neighborhood in Chicago. I want to give you a little bit bigger picture because there was a lot going on in Chicago in these couple of days. Most of our stuff is taking place in, um, I believe, the south end of Chicago. Uh About a 30-minute drive away 
is what they call the West area or the West side area of Chicago. And in this area, there was a riot around this same time. Uh, remember, we are in July of 1966. I left off on our story on the night of July 12th was the night that Richard stole the gun from LMA Hooper. July 12th, same day, in West Chicago, just about uh, 20 miles away. It was hot as hell, uh, not going to lie. On July 12th, it reached 100 degrees in Chicago. Gosh, does Chicago get that hot? Apparently, this was abnormal. The whole city was kind of miserable. And I know some people are shaking their head at me because 100 is normal for you, but 100 is not normal for everyone. Yeah. So what actually ended up happening is that in several of the less affluent neighborhoods around town, the locals were opening fire hydrants to get some kind of relief from the heat. Yeah. In a black neighborhood... A young boy opened a fire hydrant. It drew a crowd of people who were just desperate for relief from the heat. The police came to shut off the hydrant, and this caused some problems. Because the locals started saying, okay, so you're coming here, and you're telling us that we can't have this hydrant open and running. But there's an Italian neighborhood right there. You aren't telling them they can't have their hydrant open. Seriously, yeah. So it caused this little bit of a, I'll call it a rumbling. A rumbling. We'll call it a rumbling. A little. And it's important to note that actually Dr. Martin Luther King was in Chicago just a few days before this. Oh, interesting. So the, the race issue was already hot in Chicago because MLK had been there just a couple of days before. Okay. So amidst this disruption with the police saying, hey, we can't do this. We're going to shut off this hydrant. Another man named William Young went and opened another fire hydrant or he attempted to so the police are standing right there and they're going hey you can't do that so they start chasing him i'm assuming they were going to arrest him i don't know what charges but they start chasing him all right so this young man starts running and as he's running he's screaming to all the people who are gathered around that the police were trying to kill him. Okay. So this drew a lot of attention. And when I say a lot, I mean a lot. It gathered a crowd of 200 people. Oh, wow. That is a lot of attention. So William Young ended up cornering himself where the police caught up to him, presumably going to arrest him. But the crowd surrounds the police and they are demanding that they let this young man go. Uh Uh-huh. Um, This is going from crowd to angry mob very quickly. And backup police officers come. William Young ends up getting away. The police end up kind of retreating. But the mob is still unhappy and they start looting. Okay. So they start looting. They break into local shops. They broke into a couple supermarkets, a liquor store. This is becoming a full-scale riot. Uh, Yeah, it is. And so now police are responding to the looting because this is a bigger problem than a fire hydrant being open. Uh And so the group of 200 people starts throwing rocks and shooting at the police officers. Because that's what one does. (laughs) That's what an angry mob of 200 rioters does. Yeah. So in the midst of all this chaos, seven policemen were wounded. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's a lot. It gets worse. Oh, no. 
the looting expands, and now people are setting businesses on fire. Oh my goodness. So the firefighters respond to put out the fire, and the mob starts throwing rocks at them. Oh my god. People need to calm down. By the end of the night on the 12th, 24 people were arrested. Oh, wow. The next day on the 13th, the mayor kind of has like a press release about that. And he refers to this as a mild incident. That's a mild incident? Oh, if only the mayor knew what was coming in the next few days. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. The 13th is another hot day. It got over 90 that day. Not as hot as the 12th. Still Uh hot. On that day, I'm saying 200 again. I don't know if this is the same 200 people or a new group of 200 people. But 200 black youth went looting and attacking police again. Oh, 200? 200. Jeez. And this was in about a 100 square block area. Jeez. So the mayor orders 400 police officers to go to the neighborhood and get the situation under control. I mean, yeah, makes sense. The rioters respond to this increased police presence by throwing Molotov cocktails at the police and engaging in more gunfire. And Molotov cocktails, are that's when you do the glass bottle with like gasoline or some accelerant in it yep, and, and a rag it. and you throw it. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So that was the 13th. By the end of that night, about 20 people were arrested. Also, about 20 people were injured amongst all of this. Not surprising. No. And then on the third day, July 14th, the riots continued. The gunfire gets more extensive. Six police were shot on the 14th. Several civilians were shot. Two innocent bystanders were killed by stray bullets. Um, I believe it was a 14-year-old and a 28-year-old. Uh-huh. And so police are increasing their use of firepower at this point. They start bringing machine guns and tear gas. Oh, my God. Things were so bad that the Chicago Transit Authority had to shut down a train because snipers on the rioters' side were shooting at the train as it went by. By midnight on the 14th, 118 people were arrested. Wow. People are nuts. In addition to this riot going on, police executed a raid at a a very specific apartment in the same neighborhood because they claimed they had information that there was a local like paramilitary group that was getting ready to grab caches of weapons and use the riot as an excuse to wage war in the city. So 21 people were arrested in that raid. Oh my goodness. On July 15th, Now, the riots have been going on for three days already. July 15th, the mayor contacts the Illinois state governor, going, we need help. So the governor sends 1,500 members of the National Guard to patrol Chicago, and they were given orders to shoot looters on sight. Holy cow. And so the violence very quickly ended because... When the choice is calm down or be executed in the street, I'm pretty right. sure I'm going to calm down. Yeah, same. Same. I'm right there with you. I'm going to calm down too. So in total, over these days, 244 people were arrested. Wow. 
So this is the scene that we're in right now. So I want to keep, I want you to keep this in mind while I go through the rest of the story. Okay. So that's like the backdrop basically. Yes. Okay. In, in an area of the city that's about 20 miles away from where we are, but it's still important to note that this is happening in the same city. Yeah. Okay. So now getting back to where Richard was. Over in the area of the Shipyard Inn, remember that's where he was renting the rooms. Right in that same area, near the Union Hall, were several townhomes. It's a whole row of townhomes. There was a local nursing school that actually rented several of these townhomes to use as student housing because their dorms were overpopulated. So think of these kind of of as um, sorority houses. Okay. That's that's what it reminds me of is um living in a sorority house versus living on on campus dorms. There's still a an extension of the school housing, but not as restrictive as the dorms. As the dorms. Still they don't there's no advisor, there's oh, no yes, there is. Yeah. Oh, there is? Oh, okay. Yes. Okay. Um and that actually gets me to I'm about to talk about some of the rules. Okay. So all the girls living in these townhomes it's important to note there's actually, I think, eight townhomes, and they were only renting three of them for the okay. nurses. Okay. And also important to note, which is really unfortunate, the three ho- townhomes were not touching. They were actually separate from each other in the room. Oh, okay. They were not okay. all the like one, two, three. It was like one, three, and five. Okay. Um, so all of the girls living in these homes were in the nursing program, and they had strict rules to adhere to and penalties if they did not follow the rules. Okay. So they had things like curfews, cleaning rules, dress codes, quiet hours, uh, no phone calls after 1 a.m., no guests if the house mother didn't agree to it, stuff like that. Okay. So one of these townhomes, the one where all the bad things happen, unfortunately, is number 2319. All right. 2319, um, that sounds like it's important. There were three bedrooms and eight nurses living there together. Okay. It was five American women and three Filipino exchange students. Oh, okay. So these were the, the American girls were Gloria Davy, Suzanne Ferris, Patricia Matusik, Nina Schmale, and Pamela Wilkening. Okay. And then the three Filipino girls were Corazon Amaro. Merlita Gar- Gargulo, Gargulo. Um, I don't know how to pronounce her last name. I feel bad. Um, and Valentina Passion. Okay. The three Filipino girls had actually come over as part of an exchange program on May 1st that same year. So they were there for just over two months at this point. And unfortunately, there was actually a pretty noticeable divide between the Americans and the exchange students. Okay. It's not really that they, like, fought or that they didn't get along together. It was more like the American girls had been in school together for years, and the Filipino girls were just kind of outsiders, and they were extremely homesick, uh-huh. so they were just separate from the American girls. Okay. Um, there was some surface-level animosity between them, but it was, like, superficial stuff, and it had to do with how they were paid, unfortunately. Okay. Because of the program the Filipino girls were brought over on, they earned full normal wages for the work that they did. Meanwhile, the American girls were still in school, 
So they were like barely paid interns and not full charge nurses. So they weren't making the same money that the exchange student were. Okay. This is where that slight bit of animosity comes in. It's okay. just the American girls were jealous that the Filipino girls were making like real money while the American girls were like struggling to get by. Oh, okay. Um, additionally, their nursing program director was a woman named Josephine Chan, and Josephine was also Filipino. Okay. So the American girls kind of looked at it as like, these three Filipino girls must be spies for the Filipino program director. Obviously. <laughs> it was not true, but yeah. that's, that's kind of how yeah, they saw it. Yeah, how they, yeah. And now I am going to go in a lot of detail about all of these girls because horrible things happened to all of them and they deserve to be known for how they were as people and not their murders. Yeah. I mean, I wasn't going to guess that this was going to end well, but okay. No. Um, so all the American girls were well known and very well liked among their classmates. Okay. Uh, Gloria, Suzanne, and Nina were all seniors. Nina was always well-dressed, and she was regarded as one of the most popular girls among all of the girls who were living in the townhomes. Okay. Gloria and Suzanne um, are described as both being slender and beautiful with these big, huge personalities that made them great leaders not just among the students, but also, like, people saw them as, like, man, they're going to be leaders in their careers. Yeah. Uh, Patricia and Pamela were hardworking students who were very dedicated to their career in nursing, and they were really well-liked by all of the students. Okay. So that's kind of a, a quick overview. I'll go into more detail on each individual girl now. So Patricia had family that lived close. Her father actually ran a saloon in town, and her family lived in the apartment above the saloon. Okay. Patricia was engaged to a male nurse named Robert, which I think is kind of cute that they're both Aww, nurses. Yeah. Patricia was a champion swimmer, and she and Robert actually liked to go to concerts, and they liked to swim together. Oh, cute. Yeah, that was one of their, like, dates. They would go swim together. It's cute. That's so cute. Um... She had this gorgeous thick hair that she was very proud of, and I, I assume that other girls envied. And on the evening of July 13th, she was excited because she had just received news that she'd been accepted at Children's Memorial Hospital in Chicago for, like, a full-time position. Oh, nice. Yes. Gloria had been captain of the cheer squad in high school, and she actually wrote teenage columns in the local papers. And she had volunteered as a nurse's aide before going to nursing school. Okay. I, I kind of picture her as a candy striper. I don't know if that's what she was doing. I pictured like like just one of those aides in there, you know, like at the where they're not. I don't know. Yeah. I know where, she volunteered before she actually yeah. pursued nurse, nursing okay. school. Okay. Okay. Um, and in her free time outside of nursing, she liked to study philosophy and she wrote poetry. Uh, Nina was a devout Lutheran. She came from a prominent family in Wheaton, Illinois, and I wanted to look more into her family, and I didn't get a chance. So maybe oh, okay. I have a chance to look more into her family um, for the next episode to give more information because 
I know it was a, a detail that she came from a prominent family. I want to know more about her family. So like part 10? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, before enrolling in nursing school, she had actually studied chemistry at Elmhurst College. Okay. Her brother was a physician working on his residency in pathology, so several healthcare workers in the family. Um, she hoped to spend her career in psychiatric nursing and like several of the other nurses, many of the other nurses actually really wanted to work with children as well. Okay. Makes sense. She was regarded as very mature and poised. And her peers all said that of all the nurses, Nina seemed to really have her act together. Oh, that's good. And she was engaged to her boyfriend of seven years named Peter. Okay. Um, Suzanne loved children, and she planned to spend her career in pediatric nursing. She was full of energy, and she loved spontaneous pranks. One of the pranks that she did was um, in the winter of 1965, she actually got a bunch of girls in her house to all put on bridesmaid dresses, and they had a huge house party. Um, <laughs> it actually ended up with all the girls involved being grounded for a week. But oh, no. she thought it was worth it. Well, yeah. So she just, life of the party, kind of a jokester. Everyone really liked her. Okay. Uh, Pamela Wilkening went by Willie, which I think is kind of cute. Yeah. She loved children and fast cars. Oh. Uh, her older brother actually participated in road races with a Porsche and a Lotus. Okay. And she would go watch him really often, and she would cheer him on. Fun. She actually had a bracelet on her wrist that had her brother's race insignia on it, and she wore it all the time. Oh, that's super cute. It a way is. to be like a supportive sister. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, she would often babysit for a woman in one of the neighboring townhomes, and she became very, very close with this woman's daughter. She said she wanted to be a nurse more than anything else in the world, and she was very active in student activities. And actually, she was the class representative on the Student Nurse Association of Illinois, so she was kind oh. of the big deal. Yeah, she sounds like it. Um, Mary Ann, who I actually did not mention earlier because she didn't live in the house, but Mary Ann was very close friends with both Pamela and Patricia. And she was often a part of whatever was going on with them. Okay. She really loved music. She was athletic. She was not interested in chasing boys. Okay. She spent a lot of her free time with her youngest brother, who was developmentally delayed. I'm not really sure how. But she spent a lot of time with her younger brother. And actually, really often, when she was spending time with Pamela and Patricia, she would bring her brother along. Okay. Marianne was the sister of i believe pamela's fiance um so now moving on to the filipino students valentina came from a tiny town and had five siblings her family was extremely poor and they were actually so poor that she had to delay starting college because she had to wait for her older brother to graduate for her parents to be able to afford to send her oh she was very shy but she had two men back home who were fond of her, and she wrote letters to both of them often while she was in Chicago. Oh, my goodness. 
Additionally, Valentina would send more than half of her monthly salary home to her family. Aw, that's so nice. One letter when she sent money home, she mentioned that they could make repairs to the house with the money. Oh, what a good daughter. So sweet. Yeah. Um, also, she homesick, obviously. Um, in a letter to her parents, she wrote, the weather is really terrible, but the work is easier than in the Philippines. Only the patients here are as big as water buffalo, which is really cute. It's so cute. <laughs> and so true, probably. probably. I mean, to her, from her perspective. Oh, yeah. Right, yeah. Um, Merlita was also from a very poor family. Uh, she was the oldest of nine children. She was also shy, and she loved to sing and dance, and I guess she had a really great singing voice. She would often receive compliments from patients at the hospital, telling her that she was so pretty and asking if she had a boyfriend or if they wanted her to, them to set her up with a boyfriend or if they wanted them to be her boyfriend. <laughs> she had never experienced anything like that before, so she was very oh. flattered. Um, She did have a boyfriend, Maybe more than one at home. It was actually a little iffy in the book. Um, and she was incredibly homesick and she would write home really Aww, often. Oh, poor thing. Corazon. Um, I kind of flip-flop in here between calling her Corazon or Cora. She's kind of referred to as both. Like the other two, she was from a very poor family. She had seven siblings. Her parents actually had a really small clothing shop, but they were still extremely poor. Oh, Okay. She was known as bright and hardworking and extremely religious. She was actually a devout Roman Catholic. And that is um, that is all of our nine girls. Okay. And um, tell me they all graduate and everyone's happy and in their careers, right? Yes. End of episode. <laughs> end of episode. Done. Thank you. I just wanted to tell you about nine yeah. really great girls who graduated <laughs> nursing school in 1966. Uh, good night. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Unfortunately, no, sorry. That's not what we're here for. Yeah. Okay. It is not. <laughs> so, July 13th, uh, Suzanne was actually supposed to be going over wedding plans, and I got it wrong earlier, and I knew I did. Uh, Marianne was sisters with Suzanne's fiance. Okay. So, um, Marianne, along with being her future sister in law, was also a nursing student. But she lived at home with her parents and not in any of the townhomes. She was one of few nurses who had family close enough that she could actually live with. Okay. On the 13th, Suzanne was going to be going over wedding plans with Marianne as well as a couple of the other girls. And as a result, Marianne was actually going to be staying in the townhome with them that night. Okay. So Marianne, Gloria, Nina, and Patricia were all going to be bridesmaids in Suzanne's wedding. Oh. That's how close these girls were. That's nice. Um, the day was pretty normal. At least it started normal. Some of the girls had work. Others had the day off. Afternoon turns to evening. They all kind of go about their routines. Um, a couple of them had dates. Like I said, some of them were discussing wedding plans. The three Filipino girls had dinner together um, because – I know you like food. Valentina made pancit for the three of them. Aww. I love pancit. It's so good. Um, 
So the three of them had dinner together. Uh, they cleaned up the kitchen together and they kind of settled into a nice night. They wrote letters to home. Uh, Gloria had a date with her fiance. Corazon did laundry. This is just a very normal night. Yeah. By 10.30 p.m., Corazon was actually putting the house to bed. She was one of the last girls that was still in the house to go Uh to bed. So she locked the front door. She's turning lights off. She, As she goes to bed, she noticed that Valentina, Pamela, and Patricia were laying in their beds in one of the rooms. Um, She saw that the light to Nina and Suzanne's room was on, but she didn't look inside. Nina and Suzanne would be sleeping in there when they got home. I don't think they were home at the time. And Marianne would be staying in there as well. So then Cora goes to her own room. Merlita is laying in bed about to say her prayers. And Cora lays down and goes to sleep. Okay. All is quiet in 2319. Yes. Yeah. Elsewhere, we find Richard. He's at the bar drinking. How did I know he was going to come back? (laughs) Because of the title of the episode. I know, I know, I know. Um, so there were some men at the bar that he was drinking at. It was a mix of military and locals. And Richard was just kind of like eyeballing one of them. Okay. One specific one. And the guy wasn't taken very kindly to it. So he finally gets up and he's like, do I know you? And Richard didn't really say anything, which caught this guy's attention. So he stops. He kind of like... At first, he wasn't really paying attention. It was like, a dude, quit staring at me. But when the guy doesn't answer, he sits up a little straighter to get a really good look at him. And Richard pulls a fucking gun on him. Oh, my goodness. Which is, by the way, the gun he stole from LMA. Of course. Calm down, Richard. Jeez. Richard has no chill. No, obviously. Um, so the man stands up because he's got a fucking gun in his face and he yeah. swings his cast around because, by the way, he had broken his ankle in a construction accident a few weeks before. So oh he's just goodness. sitting there having a drink because he can't work. Yeah. When this douchebag comes up and pulls a gun on him. Yeah. And somehow this changes Richard's attitude to what I can only call timid. He Im- he immediately apologizes for pulling the gun on him. And he says, man, I'm sorry. Can I buy you a drink? Do you think that's a manipulation tactic at all? I don't know. Okay. I really, truly do not know with Richard. Yeah, okay. So the man goes, no, I'm good. And then he continues. He goes, by the way, maybe you should watch who you pull a gun on because you might pull a gun on the wrong person. Yeah, that's good advice. So Richard just keeps apologizing. And somehow this guy who just got a gun pulled on him gets suckered into a conversation with Richard. Oh, my gosh. So finally, this guy is just feeling off. He's got a broken ankle. He's had his drink for the night. He just wants to go home. Yeah, he's done with Richard. He goes over to his brother, who's actually playing pool. His brother's been there the whole time, right? Yes. Okay. Um, and he's like, hey, by the way, um, I'm going to go, but can you keep an eye on this dude over here? Because he just pulled a gun on me. And he's a wackadoo, clearly. And his brother offered to beat him with a pool stick. (laughs) Well, you know what? That's a good brother right there. Um, and so this original guy, he goes, no, no, I don't think that's necessary. He seems fine. Just 
keep an eye on him. Yeah. I mean, he said he seems okay, except the the fact that he just like fucking pulled a gun on you, dude. Like, ah, seriously. Like, what so the heck? The man calls his fiance to pick him up because he's got a broken angle. He's not walking anywhere. He's not driving anywhere. The two of them end up sitting in a booth with Richard. Oh, my goodness. I don't know how this happened. Yeah. So Richard starts talking about his whole work history. Remember in episode one, or part one, I should say. Remember in part one, we talked about Richard and his his tale, his uh, exploits on the high seas and him getting appendicitis and his hospital stay. Yeah, He shares his life story with these two poor yeah. people. Yeah, yeah. Um, he also, and this kind of got me for a minute, he actually also told them about his divorce and his daughter, and he pulled a photo out of his wallet of his ex-wife and his daughter to show to them. Aww. So he, like, still had a photo of them. That's kind of weird, but... I, I mean, as shitty as he treated them, he yeah. must have cared for them in some capacity. Oh, he had to have. But see, then I'm still wondering, like... Like, the more I hear about kind of his reactions and some of the things he does, I don't know if it's more like a manipulation tactic, you know? I really, I don't think so. I think he's just not all there. And he okay. flip-flops wildly. It it doesn't feel like a manipulation to me. Okay. It just feels okay. like a guy who is a little off. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Just um, checking. So in the process of pulling this photo out of his wallet, he ends up actually spilling his drink. And so um, the man mentioned that this didn't seem like Richard was intoxicated and spilled his drink. He said he felt like it was genuinely an accident that he was fumbling with his wallet and he knocked his drink over. So he cleans up the mess. He orders himself a replacement drink and Richard insists again. He's like, please let me buy you a drink to apologize for pulling a gun on you. Yeah. So finally the man is like, fuck it. Yeah, give me a beer. Oh, okay. So they drink a beer together. And after about a half hour, the couple is like, okay, nice meeting you, but we actually really do need to go now. Both of them describe Richard as essentially harmless. Well, because he sounds like it. He pulled a gun on you. I know, but then, like, I'm sure some people are like, oh, well, he, he's probably just a little mentally insane and, you know, but harmless. I mean, I don't care how nice you are. If you pull a gun on me, you're not harmless. Well, yeah, but then if you show me a picture of <laughs> your wife, your ex-wife and daughter, then I'm all about it. <laughs> yeah. Um, they also both remarked that he didn't seem intoxicated at all, which oh. he was very put together um, they just said that he just really didn't seem intoxicated. He just seemed like a, a harmless guy. Okay. Still seems weird. Yeah. Richard continues on in the bar. He ends up playing pool with the man's brother, who, by the way, was the one who threatened to beat him with the pool stick. <laughs> Other patrons of the bar said that Richard was extremely skilled at pool, which with the amount of time he spends in bars, he better be. Uh, Richard stayed at the bar drinking and telling wild made-up stories about serving in Vietnam because Richard likes to lie because that's the only way people like him, apparently. Mm -hmm. And he was there until 1030. Okay. When he decided to leave and go about something that he had obviously been planning for days. Oh, no. So he went to his room upstairs. He uh -huh. dressed in all black. 
and he took a 30-minute walk down the road to where the townhouses were. Oh, no. So now we go back to 2319 where the nurses are. Most of them are tucked in bed. A few of them aren't home yet. They had a midnight, I think a midnight 30 curfew. Uh Uh-huh. And 2319 was on the end. Behind the row of townhomes was an alley. And beyond the alley was a very small park called Luella Park, which, by the way, is the park that Richard slept in the night he didn't have a place to stay. Oh, okay. So do you think he already knew he already had staked out this area and knew who was living in those houses? I didn't mention it in part one because it seemed like there was so much detail. I couldn't share it all. But yes, in the midst of these couple of days where Richard was going here, there, everywhere, he saw the nurses in these homes. Okay. Okay. That's what I kind of figured. And that's why I think he had been planning this for days. The house next door to 2319 was 2317. There was a big brick wall separating the courtyard of 19 and 17. Okay. 17 had a family that lived in it. It was not nurses. They were out of town that night. Next door was 2315, and this was another one of the nurses' homes. Okay. So there's a full townhouse between these two nurses' homes. And these homes were separate enough with the brick walls. You couldn't really see anything, and you could not hear anything from one of those houses to the other. All right. Um, The house mother – was the house mother for all three townhomes. Her name was Laura Bisson. She was in her 50s, and she would stay up late to sign the girls back in at night to make sure they made curfew. Okay. At 11 p.m., Richard approached 2319. Remember, it was about 1030 when Corazon had kind of touched the house to bed. Yeah, yeah. He pried open a back window with his knife. He went upstairs. And he knocked on one of the closed doors. Corazon was inside this room. She goes to unlock the door and see who it was. She thought it might have been one of the other girls getting home late, just like saying, hey, we're home. Yeah. Only for Richard to shove his way inside as as soon as she unlocked that door. Uh, Corazon noted that he did have a gun in his hand. He asked her where her friends were. And Cora kind of mentioned that it was just her and Merlita in that room. So he marched them to another bedroom at gunpoint to grab all of the other girls. He marched them to a back bedroom, and that's where Valentina was sleeping. Um, Cora and Merlita get inside this room where Richard is also kind of like, is there anyone else here? They run and hide in the closet. Oh. Richard finds all the other girls in the house, which was Pamela, Patricia, and Nina. He brings them to this room, and one of the girls, and I don't know which one, knocks on the closet and says, come out of the closet. He's not going to harm you. Richard directs all of them with his gun to sit on the floor facing him. And at this exact moment, Suzanne comes home. She came inside to use the kitchen phone to call the house mother to say, Hey, we're home from curfew. Once she checked in, she went back outside and snuck out with Marianne and Patricia. Oh man. So they had checked in for the night. Of course, I'm sure anyone who's lived in a dorm or a sorority has done something like this. Yeah. Like, oh, we're home. And then just yeah. like leave. And then leaves. Yeah. None of the six girls, 
knew that Suzanne had come inside. Suzanne had no idea what was going on upstairs. Oh, no. Meanwhile, upstairs, the girls are asking Richard, what do you want? And he just says, I want money. I'm going to New Orleans. I just want money. So all of them quickly agreed. They're like, yes, we have money in our purses. We will give you money. Yeah, like no problem. So one at a time, Richard at gunpoint allows them to stand up, go to their purse, empty it out for him, give him cash. A couple of the girls, remember, had come from a different bedroom. So he marched all of them together to the other bedroom so they could grab their purses and give him cash. He had only gotten about $20 from them. That's it? Yep. Oh my gosh. And it's now 11.40 p.m. Gloria was coming home from her date with her fiancé, Robert. They had just gone out to dinner with his mother to celebrate, one, that his mother had actually just been released from the hospital, but also, two, they had just gotten engaged. So they were celebrating their engagement as well. Okay. So Robert is driving her home. They sat in the car outside listening to music together. Um, It was actually their favorite song. It was called You'll Never Walk Alone. They sang along to it together. No, stop. They kissed goodnight. I'm including all of these details just for you because you love a love story. (laughs) I do. Um, They kissed goodnight. Gloria got out of the car like a good fiance. Robert stayed, watched her walk in the door. And when the door shut, he drove away. And she probably, as she was walking up the door, she probably looked back smiled at him probably and then went inside uh cue the music (laughs) you'll never walk alone yeah (laughs) um so gloria goes to the phone and she calls her house mother to check in she's going hey i'm home and she had just been celebrating so she had had quite a bit of champagne and she was a little tipsy so she's walking upstairs kind of in this haze of like happiness she just had this great yes She went, she walks to her bedroom, and the second she goes to open the door, Richard opens the door, shoves his gun into her gut, and orders her to sit on the floor with the other six nurses. Fucking Richard. He asks her if she has any money. She said that she did, but it was only change. And he said, well, I don't want that. I only want bills. So she couldn't really give him anything. So now Richard starts thinking. All these girls are sitting on the floor facing him and he smokes a cigarette and while he's smoking the cigarette he's talking to them he said don't be afraid i'm not gonna kill you which like that is the last thing i want to hear in this situation 100 percent. so he also i don't know what he tried to joke about but i guess they try he tried to like joke with them to like put them at ease but that's not gonna work because these are young girls in their early 20s who are being held at gunpoint by some nut job yeah yeah realizing that they were not really going to play along with him, he stands up, he takes a sheet off one of the beds and starts slicing it into strips. Man. Using a switchblade he had in his pocket. This is the same switchblade he just kind of liked to carry around with him. Yeah. Pamela was sitting closest to him and he started with her. He tied her ankles in front of her and then he tied her wrists around her back using strips of cloth. Okay. Um, he moved methodically through all the women, tying all of them up, all the while saying, don't worry, I'm not going to kill you. Don't be afraid. You're fine. Uh, what a... Mm. 
while he's working through the girls tying them up, he now – remember there were six to begin with and then Gloria yeah. came home. So we're at seven. Yeah. Okay. He has five of the girls tied up and the doorbell rings downstairs. Okay. Cora and Merlita were the only two that hadn't been tied up yet. So he grabs the two of them, takes them downstairs at gunpoint, and he says, answer the door. They answer the door. No one's there. So they all okay. march back upstairs. Who? I wonder who rang the doorbell. Funny you ask, because I know who. Okay. The person that rang the doorbell was a nurse from 2315. She was oh. she was on the phone with her boyfriend, just kind of catching up after at the end of the day, and she got hungry and she wanted a sandwich. Okay. They didn't have any bread in 2315, so she had told her boyfriend, hey, just hold on a minute. She put the phone down, ran over to 17 to see if they had any bread she could use. They didn't answer right away, and she didn't want her boyfriend just sitting there and, like, the – um. Not lights out, but no phone calls after 1 a.m., right? Yeah, yeah. She wants to talk to her boyfriend, so she runs back to the house. And that's why by the time Cora and Merlita got downstairs, no one was at the door. Oh, okay. So now we're at about midnight. I think that is the third time that night that somebody, if they had just gotten there, or stayed longer, they would have oh, known something man. was happening. Yeah. There are so many near misses in this story. This oh, is I absurd. hate when that happens. Yeah. There's so many of them. Uh, Here's another one. Number four. Okay. A nurse named Kathy lived at one of the other townhomes. Not 2315, but she lived at like the other end of the lane. I don't remember what number she lived in. She was out with her boyfriend. She was friends with Nina, and she had actually borrowed a typewriter from Nina earlier in the day. Okay. So she asked her boyfriend, hey, do you mind, like, before you drop me off at home, can you just swing by 2319, and if they're awake, I just want to give Nina her typewriter back. So they drive by, but the house is dark because Richard didn't turn on any lights when he broke into the house, and remember, Cora had turned everything off. Yeah. The house was dark, so Kathy told her boyfriend, just take her home. Because she needed to make curfew. It was almost midnight 30. Mm-hmm. To make matters worse, of all the people that night who almost caught Richard, Kathy was probably one of the people who was most capable of helping the girls in that house. Wow, because wow. her boyfriend had taught her how to handle and shoot a gun. And she carried a gun for protection. Oh, wow. And she... Other nurses described her as someone with the temperament to use the gun if necessary. Oh, man. So of all the people who could have helped that night, she probably probably could have made the biggest difference. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, no. So it is now 1215 a.m. All seven women are tied up by their wrists and ankles. Richard goes back to the beginning. He goes back to Pamela. He untied her ankles pulled her to her feet, and marched her out of the room at gunpoint. Okay. With the gun jabbed into her back so that she knew it was there. And if she was tempted to scream, she wouldn't because that Uh gun was right there. As soon as he left, the six women in the room start debating with each other on what to do. Good. Like, I would be like, let's kill him. Let's overtake him and kill him. 
But I mean, they're tied up, so I guess it doesn't matter. Right. Um, Gloria, remember, she had actually had a, a, quite a bit of champagne. She had actually passed out while Richard was tying them up, and he had actually picked her up and put her on the bed because she was passed out. Oh. But the other five women were arguing. Okay. The Filipino women had grown up in bad neighborhoods. Uh-huh. All of them recognized Richard as a predator and that he was going to hurt them. Oh. And the Filipino women said, we need to fight back and we need to do it together. Yeah. This really pisses me off. The American oh girls had taken some intro to psych courses. And oh. they said, they said, no, this, this is, we need to treat him calmly and we need to treat him like an unruly patient. You guys don't get it. We can't fight him. We need to give him what he wants. We'll just oh, be calm. It'll God. be fine. Because the Filipino girls couldn't get all of them to work together, the Filipino girls were tiny. They could not fight him by themselves. They needed all five girls together because the Americans wouldn't agree with them. None of them did anything. Oh, that sucks. Mm -hmm. Richard had taken Pamela to a bedroom at the other end of the hall, and he gagged her with some of the sheet. He was hovering over her when Suzanne and Mary came home. Okay. Because remember, Suzanne had come home earlier that night, called and checked in. They had actually gone to 2317. They were hanging out there. They were um, with some of the other girls. Something happened that there's so many tiny details in here that I don't feel like going into it. But essentially, Suzanne and Marianne figured they had overstayed their welcome and they decided to go back to their own town home to sleep for the night. Oh, Okay. Um, there was this whole drama with like the house mother and the girls in the house and they were being noisy. It was this whole dumb thing that Suzanne and Marianne basically decided like, yeah, we're just going to go back to 2319 and go to sleep. Oh, all right. That makes zero sense. Okay. I didn't feel like going into details because it was, it was ridiculous. It was okay. just, it's okay. too much minute detail that I don't need to go into. Yeah, okay. okay. Basically Suzanne and Marianne come home. Earlier than they had originally planned. All right. Richard had Pamela in their room. So they had come into the home. They opened the door thinking they were just going to go to bed. And they see Pamela with her bottom half stripped and Richard hovering over her. Suzanne and Mary turn and start running. Okay. And somehow Richard was able to corral them into the bedroom where all the other tied up women are. All right. Obviously, they're shocked to see six of their housemates tied up in this bedroom. And Richard goes in the room. He takes both of them at gunpoint and forces them back over to the room that Pamela was in. Suzanne and Marianne start fighting. And I really wish that those two had been the two Americans that were in the room with the Filipinos. Uh Because if they were, they all would have taken down Richard. Oh, yeah. Unfortunately, it was just Suzanne and Marianne against Richard. Mm. And Richard reacted swiftly and violently. Oh, no. He stabbed Marianne in the eye and then stabbed her three more times in the chest. And then he took Suzanne, he stabbed her 11 times in the chest, seven times in the back, and then 
just for a cherry on top, he strangled her with a pair of stockings he found in the room. Oh, no. Pamela, still helpless on the floor, he stabbed her a single time through the heart. Oh, my gosh. So he has now killed three girls in about ten minutes. Jeez. He grabbed a blanket off one of the beds and just tossed it over them to cover their bodies. Because he had he had a plan. He didn't want the next victim seeing these bodies. Gosh. And then Richard went in the bathroom to wash his hands. Ugh. So the girls could hear him go to the bathroom and they're kind of scared. Well, yeah. Well, not kind of. They're scared. They can hear they're what scared. he's doing. Yeah. Richard grabs his gun, goes back to the room, unties Nina's ankles, and leads her out. And at this point, the girls left in the room are like, well, fuck. He just took three girls out. Zero girls came back in. He just took Nina out. We need to hide. They start hiding the only places there are, which is basically in corners of the room. There's not very many places to hide in a bedroom, especially with your wrists and ankles tied together. Tied together. I was going to say. So they kind of scooted themselves around. They sandwiched themselves like between bunk beds, behind beds. Um, Cora tried to get herself under a bed, but she couldn't. Um, She managed to get like half her body under. By the time Richard had finished killing Nina, washed his hands and come back again. Oh, man. Meanwhile... The nurses in 2317 were up late studying because there was this big test they had the next day, and they decided to fuel their studying. They wanted pizza. Okay. So Tammy, this was the same girl who came looking for bread earlier. She had gotten off the phone with her boyfriend because they wanted to call and order pizza, and she thought she heard some strange noises outside. So she actually walks to the backyard and looks over at 2319. But the noise stopped, and she was like, oh, maybe I'm just hearing things. Oh. So she didn't really think much of it. Meanwhile, the pizza pizza delivery boy arrived to deliver the pizza. It was almost closing time, so he was actually in a rush Uh to get back so he could go home on time. Yeah. In his mistake, he ended up going to 2319 instead Uh of 2315. As Wait. he's walking up to the house, 2319 is where the murders are occurring. Okay, okay, okay. As he's walking up to the house, he realizes that this house is dark. They just ordered pizza. And he's like, oh, crap. Wrong house. Ugh. So he doesn't even bother knocking. He walks two doors down to 2315, delivers oh. their pizza. Oh, my gosh. This is now counting Tammy. How many? I was going to say, how many close calls is this? Counting Tammy, thinking she heard noises, and now the pizza delivery boy. We are at six. Holy cow. Oh, my goodness. That makes my stomach hurt. Richard washes his hands again, comes back for Valentina, then washes his hands and comes back for Merlita. And then Patricia. With each girl, he's spending progressively more and more time with them. What is he doing? Just killing them or more? I don't want to go into details. This is one of the things that I don't want to go into. Okay. He, I will say simply, he was torturing and raping them. Okay. Oh, man. These Um, poor girls. 
every time Richard left the room, Cora would try and shove herself underneath this bed. Ugh. Patricia was the last girl that he took out. God, could you imagine being the last girl? Oh, so, my God. All the girls are gone except for Cora and Gloria. Remember, Gloria is passed out. She's on the bed. Cora managed to get herself under the bed that Gloria was on. Okay. Richard comes in the room. He unties Gloria and rapes her on the bed on top of where Cora is hiding. Oh, my goodness. And this is, like, fucking disgusting. And I only mention this one detail because we've heard several people describe Richard as, like, being oddly polite, right? Like, yeah, even the woman yeah. he raped in the other town mentioned that he was, like, polite. Yeah. Cora, lying under the bed, said she specifically remembered Richard asking Gloria to put her legs behind his back while he's raping her. Oh, my God. He said, will you please put your legs behind my back? Oh, gross. No. And I know that's a horrible detail. Yeah. But I think that illustrates all the commentary we've heard from everyone else. Yeah, but It's still. also so weird yeah. that he's he's phrasing it like a, a nice request. Well, and then that's just showing me, too. He, like, is trying, I think, I like, almost like trying to make this into something in his head that it's not like almost as if what he's doing isn't wrong and asking these girls to like put their legs behind their back is Uh like you know and so nonchalant it sounds like and so calm too and i didn't mention any of like the other things but he was like making small talk with them and like asking have you ever done this before are you a virgin it's disgusting it's like he's almost dissociate what is that called um dissociating I don't know if he's dissociating. Disassociating. Because he's he's treating this like a normal um, consensual interaction between. And it's totally not. Like yeah, that's girls, what I'm saying. Yeah, these girls are tied up. They're being held at gunpoint. Like this is not consensual, but he's still making like sweet requests like he's asking for a cup of tea. Yeah, that's what's – that's just bizarre. Yes. So Cora, poor Cora, under the bed said she squeezed her eyes shut, tried to block out the noise, and just waited for it to be over. And after a while, she actually realized that she couldn't hear Richard anymore. Uh-huh. She takes a huge risk. She peeks out from under the bed, and she realized that Richard has taken Gloria out of the room. Okay. She was also afraid that Richard had seen her under that bed. So she decides, I need to move. Remember, this girl still has her arms tied around her back and her ankles are bound together. Yeah. She manages to get out from under this bed, scoots herself across the room, and wedges herself under a different bed. Oh, my goodness. Remember I mentioned that Richard was spending more and more time with each girl? Yeah. Um, It started with about 20 minutes. By the time he got to Gloria, he spent 50 minutes outside that room with her. Jeez. It is now 3.30 a.m. Ugh. He went back into the room, and for the first time since he broke into that house at 11, he turns the light on. Oh. And what happens? 
he rifles through Gloria's purse because she had actually been carrying it when she tipsily walked into the room. Uh-huh. He ends up not really finding anything in there because she had told him all she had was coins. Yeah. He throws the purse across the room. It ends up skittering under the bed where Cora is hiding. It almost hits her. <gasps> oh, no. And thankfully, um, the bed Cora hid under actually had a blanket that was draped down from the bed to the floor. Yeah, that was yeah. hiding her. Oh, okay. So Richard walks out of the house. He leaves the front door wide open. And he starts walking back to the shipyard inn. Okay. He crosses a bridge that goes over the Chicago River. He threw the bloody switchblade in. He went back to his room at the inn and he went to sleep. Oh. Okay. And left. And then who finds the girls? Oh, she's still alive under the bed. So then what happens? At 5.40 a.m., one of the nurses in 2315 had an alarm set. Because she wanted, you know, they were studying for the test the night before. Yeah. She wanted a couple hours to cram before the test in the morning. Okay. And she wakes up and she starts hearing what sounds like an animal whining outside and she just kind of ignores it. Uh Uh-huh. But the sound gets louder and louder and she kind of starts paying attention to it and she realizes this is, it sounds more like a child crying. Yeah. And that gets her attention. All these nurses are attuned to like human suffering. Uh Uh-huh. She goes to her window. And she sees outside, Cora is on the porch, screaming, oh my god, they're all dead. Judy is this nurse's name. She runs outside to where Cora's on the porch, and Cora's sobbing. So, remember the front door is wide open. Judy can see Gloria's body on the couch from the front porch. Oh my goodness. Her head is like lolling off the couch at a weird angle. Weird enough that she didn't even go inside. Yeah. And Judy could see the gag wrapped around her face from where she was. Oh, no. So she starts screaming for the house mother, saying there's trouble in 19. Yeah. And poor Cora is hysterical. And she starts screaming at everybody, don't go inside. He might be in there. He might kill you, too. He might still be there. Oh, no. The house mother... And one of the other nurses from 15 go inside to investigate. They find Gloria downstairs unresponsive. The, and the house mother stayed downstairs with Gloria. Uh-huh. The nurse goes upstairs and finds Patricia in the bathroom. They find the back bedroom where the girls had been held and there were no bodies in there. Yeah. But then they proceeded to the other bedroom, found three bodies covered with a blanket. And in the third bedroom... They find Nina on the bed with two other girls on the floor. What a scene to walk into. That had to have been awful. So that nurse goes, and remember, this is like one of the student nurses. Yeah. Goes back downstairs to the house mother and says, they're all dead. There's nothing we can do about it. Oh, no. So the house mother calls the hospital asking for help. She's, the house mother is hysterical at this point. She says that all her girls in 19 are dead. The hospital starts asking, well, who is it? What's going on? The house mother is like, don't ask questions. Just send yeah, just get over here. Oh, yeah. So there happened to be a police officer doing his regular patrols. He was just kind of cruising the neighborhood. Uh-huh. Uh, this was Officer Daniel Kelly. Okay. And um, one of the women in another townhome, not a nurse, but one of the other people that lived there, heard the screams 
saw the scene that was beginning to build outside 19 flags down the officer and says, um, we, we need you over here. There's something going on. The officer doesn't know what's going on, but he radios for backup. He's like, Hey, there's something going on here. There's a lot of hysterical women outside. Please send some backup. Yeah. More and more nurses from 17 and the other, not from 17, from 15 and the other townhome are gathering outside because this Uh is a scene. Yeah. So Officer Kelly walks inside. He saw Gloria's body on the couch and he recognized her because he had dated her sister a few years before. Oh, no. What's really sad is that Officer Kelly, he was married at this point. His wife worked at the hospital. He personally knew almost every one of those girls. Oh, no. Was his um, wife working at the hospital that night? I'm not too? sure if she was, but okay. he knew that through his wife, he knew all of these girls. That is horrible. So years later, he would describe walking through the house as the most traumatic event of his life. Uh, Yeah, it would have to be. He had only been a police officer for 18 months at this point. Oh, my goodness. The first homicide detective on scene was Jack Wallenda. Uh-huh. I need to look more into this because one of the things mo- mentioned in the book was that Jack Wallenda was cousin to a trapeze circus family called the Flying Wallendas. <laughs> okay. It's just a weird fact that was in the middle of this horrific book. I want to look more into it. I don't know if I'm going to have a chance to. Okay. Um. So now that we have an actual detective on scene, now we start getting more details about how the girls were found. Along with all the other injuries I already described with the stabbings before, here's the yeah. rest. Okay. Gloria was bound with her hands behind her back, except she wasn't bound with strips of sheet. Uh-huh. She was bound with strips of her own shirt. Oh, so he just basically ripped up her shirt and tied her and tied with her it? up with it. Yeah. Okay. Um, he noted that the knots were bound very tightly and seemed to be professionally done. We all know who did this, so I'm not going to do like, yeah. a, oh, who is yeah. it? But professionally <laughs> done, Richard was a merchant seaman. I was just about to say that. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, the detective actually said that due to how tight the knots were, they actually had to cut them with scissors. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. Um, I didn't go into details about these knots that he did, but he basically did like a double knot and then wrapped it around and did like a double knot on top of it. Okay. I didn't see anywhere if there was a specific knot that he tied, just that the knots uh-huh. he did were tight. Okay. Um. A really quick detail that I'm just going to glaze over. Uh, due to evidence found at the scene, it was obvious that Gloria had been sodomized. Oh. Um, Nina was found on the bed spread eagle with a bed sheet tied around her neck. Her head was on a pillow and another pillow was on her face as if Richard had tried to smother her with it. There were also three superficial wounds on her neck, indicating that Richard had tortured her with smaller stabs to her neck before strangling her. Jeez, this guy. Uh, Valentina was found lying on the floor on her stomach. When they turned her over, her throat was slashed so deeply that her voice box was visible. Lying on top of Valentina was Merlita, who was still bound by the wrists and ankles. There were four deep stab wounds in her neck. 
Patricia was found in the bathroom with her hands still bound behind her and a strip of bed sheet was tied around her neck where she had been strangled. Oh, man. Um, The house mother and the nursing director, Josephine, were allowed inside to try and identify the girls. Oh, what a job. How awful. Well, it gets worse because the girls were so mutilated that they could only identify Gloria, Patricia, and Pamela. Oh, my god! The other ones were so torn up they couldn't even identify them. Ugh. More and more neighbors are gathering at the scene because this is horrific. And, I mean, there are police cars. There are – they actually had to summon eight patrol cars to remove the eight bodies. Jeez. So this is this is crazy. Yeah. And what I thought was really interesting because I just covered this case recently – Um, One of the reasons that this case got so huge in the media is because this was the biggest crime story since Howard Unra's Walk of Death. Oh. So this was like the- Huge. It was because it was a huge violent thing. Yeah. And all of these girls in one house. Uh Like that's crazy. With a living witness. It's like everything you need for a crazy story. Even yeah. without all of Richard's idiosyncrasies and weird shit that he did. I mean, it's well, a crazy story and, to begin with. And then all of those people that had close calls where they could yes. have like, I mean, I am sure when the news broke and they heard about it, they were like, oh my God, like I, I could have. close. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's awful. Um. So by the time the eight women's bodies were removed, news cameras were on scene. They were rolling, trying to catch a peek of something. And... So the investigation was passed to the Chicago Police Department homicide commander. His name was Francis Flanagan and the Cook County coroner, who was Andrew Toman, Toman. Okay. Something like that. The press was swarming. They needed to give some kind of statement. Flanagan was a very straightforward kind of guy. So he gave a statement to the press. He just said, my men will find the killer. We have to find him quickly because this is ridiculous. And that's basically all he said. Yeah. Andrew Toman was the first one to say that this is the crime of the century. Oh, wow. So from the morning that the bodies were discovered, that's where this came from. Okay. And so that is where I'm going to end part two. Oh, my gosh. Part three, I'm going to go into the manhunt for Richard Speck and the trial, his conviction, and some weird shit that has happened after his conviction. Oh, there's more? Oh, there's so much more. Oh, my gosh. This really is the crime of the century. (laughs) Oh, Uh, man. Yeah. Okay. So that was part two. It was a lot. We'll be back for part three. Yep. And actually, uh, this is more for the listeners than it is for you. But I think um, because I did not plan on this being three parts, we're not going to make you wait two weeks for part three. I will release it sooner. Um, Well, yay. I look forward to hearing that too. um, Look out for part three. I don't know exactly how soon it will be posted. It'll be a week at most, maybe more like a few days. So, All right. Looking forward to it. Yep. let let that stir in your brain. Please don't go Google what happened after he was convicted because I want you all to learn with me. Yeah, um, and don't go re don't go watch the uh, documentary that is so accessible to you. 
Um, and <laughs> I just want to say I've been doing this, like I said, for six weeks. <laughs> I have not watched the documentary. Oh, you haven't? No. Okay. When you're done with all of this, watch the documentary. Yeah, I haven't because documentaries are inherently biased. They have a specific story they want to tell. Yeah, that's true. Arguably, books are very biased too, but there was so much information in this book. Um, I think just for reference, my notes for part one and two covered only the first, I think, 100 pages of the book, and it's a 500-page book. I promise I'm not covering the whole book. It will only be three parts if I it's the last thing I do, I promise. If it's a three-hour part three, I apologize, but we're only having three parts. This isn't going to be another Darley. I can't do it. All right. Sounds <laughs> good. <laughs> you sound we like- We won't make you. We won't make you. You Not sound bad. like I can hear in your voice like um, oh, maybe someone needs to check on Crystal. Yeah. <laughs> I live alone. There's no one yeah, to check on me now. check on her. Someone check on her, please. <laughs> okay. Oh, man. Okay. Yep. So I'll see everybody in an indeterminate amount of time. All right. Looking forward to it. Yep. Bye. Enjoy your lives, and I'll get back to mine at some point. <laughs> Without Richard Speck, hopefully. Yeah. Okay. Bye. Bye. <laughs>